Um, I want you to note first that this miracle is not John's equivalent of the healing of the centurion's servant in Matthew 8 and Luke 7. The settings are different. Cana here versus Capernaum there. The subjects are different. A son here versus a slave there. Hence, the two stories are two distinct miraculous incidents. Now, that goes against the grain of all the liberal critics, but nonetheless, I think when you read the uniqueness of the particular incidents, you have to pay attention to the fact that they are distinct events. John's account of this miracle is singular, even as his account of the miracle at the wedding at Cana is singular, He is the only one who records it, as he is the only one who records the miracle at Cana. It's interesting that the critics don't dismiss the uniqueness of the miracle at Cana. Now, second, you will observe that following the first miracle at Cana, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, chapter 2, verse 13. Now, I want you to notice that after the second miracle at Cana, chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. The shift from Cana of Galilee to Jerusalem of Judea is significant. It is once again an indication of continuity and similarity. This is a poignant story poignant story of a father and his dying son. It is uniquely and singularly Johannine in its account, and we find those characteristic elements of the Johannine style, dualism, irony, parallelism. We've already identified parallelism in verses 47 and 54, out of Judea into Galilee. Those are duplicate parallel phrases. There is parallelism in verses 50 and 53. You will notice in those two verses the same phrase, your son lives, is duplicated. Verses 47 and 49, come down. Come down is duplicated in both verses. And finally, verses 50 and 53, believed. Believed is duplicated as the reference in 46 to 54 is duplicated in reference to the miracle sign at Cana, something I pointed out earlier. We have no less than four significant duplication patterns within this very small pericope. That's quite significant. Well, there is a dualism in this story. It is the dualism of life versus death to which I've alluded, but there is an emphatic display of Christ's healing power his power over the forces of death and forces which produce death, including sickness. So this is the first healing miracle described in the fourth gospel. It is a particular place at a particular plan in the gospel of John. What is its place in John's gospel plan beyond the fact that it has an inclusive position, an inclusio position? It is a healing miracle which parallels the creation miracle enveloping the frame, bracketing the events from Cana to Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria back to Cana and again up to Jerusalem 
omnipotent supernaturalism. Omnipotent supernaturalism with respect to creation, the wedding at Cana, chapter 2. Omnipotent supernaturalism complemented by almighty supernaturalism with respect to the curse, the curse of death and dying at Cana in chapter 4. The transformation of inanimate creation, water to wine, parallels the transformation of animate creation, death to life. Both miracles are bold signs of the surpassing excellence of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus greater than Jewish ritual purification water. Jesus greater than the death in the arena of Jewish indifference and hostility. John chapters 2 to 4 are full of redemptive historical shifts which take place in and through Jesus. Not the era of Jewish ritualism. That is over. It is finished. It is done. Not the era of life under the curse of death. That is over. It is finished. It is done. In Jesus, the best. The best wine. The best life. And sandwiched in between, in Jesus, the best temple. The best birth. The best bridegroom. The best water. The best ingatherer. A radical, redemptive, historical shift is laid out between the antipodes of the inclusio in John 2 and 4. Now, I've suggested a redemptive historical transition, specifically the end of the old, the dawn of the new, sandwiched between the Cana inclusio. Now, a sandwich within the pericope that's before us. We identified the duplicate or parallel phrases, your son lives, in verses 50 and 53. And in between that duplicate assurance, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, verse 50. Notice, it is that statement, the father believed that Jesus is surrounded by the pronouncement of life. The father believed in Jesus, and that pronouncement is surrounded by life. Nestled within the words, proclaiming the reversal of death, the Father believed on Jesus. Sandwiched between Jesus' declaration, the Father's faith. Faith enclosed within the life-giving power of the word of Jesus. Here is the proper response to the almighty life-giving, death-reversing power of Jesus. It is faith. That is what John is showing you here. Trusting Jesus' word, believing Jesus' word, is life, not death. Genuine faith is at the heart of this gospel, and the royal official has it. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke. And you are invited to this faith. This faith in the word of Jesus that is life. In the midst of death and dying, you are invited to stand with the royal official and believe on the Lord Jesus and believing have life in his name. Now, turning to the narrative poetics of this pericope, we notice something atypical in the fourth gospel. Atypical. This story unfolds rapidly. No long dialogue, as with Nicodemus and the woman at the well, No discourse as after Nicodemus and after John the Baptist and after the woman at the well. Just a rapid fire beginning, middle, end. We begin with Jesus 
return to Galilee. The middle is the encounter between Jesus and the distraught father. The end is the miraculous healing of the child and and the faith of the entire household. Notice that, verse 53, the whole house. Boy, father, servants, the whole household believes in Jesus. This entire story begins, develops, ends rapidly, uncharacteristically Johannine. And dramatic movement, the dramatic movement of this story advances rapidly. Action verbs, action verbs no less. Verse 46, Jesus came to Cana. Verse 47, the royal official heard Jesus had come out of Judea and he went to him and was asking him to come down and to heal his son. Action, action, action. Verse 48, Jesus said, no action. No action. Verse 49, Lord, stronger than sir, Lord, come down, action, before my son dies. Final action when no more action will avail. Verse 50, Jesus said, no action. Go your way. Do you get it? Look at the irony. Go your way. You act. You act. Now here, here is Johannine irony with abundance. This father is full of action. On behalf of his dying son, Jesus does not act. He gives a speech about unbelieving Galileans. I submit that that would have stopped our action. Jesus appears to throw cold water on the Father's active, intense zeal in seeking, approaching, beseeching Jesus, pleading for Jesus to act. The Father is met not with action, but with a speech about miracles and unbelief. Indeed, I submit verse 48 would have put a stop to our action. But not this father. Not this father. He does not miss a beat. Not a single beat. Lord, come down before my child dies. Now at the center of the beseeching plea, duplicated in verse 47 and verse 49, the word Lord. You see it there in the text. This father is set apart from the Galilean crowds as the atypical receiver. He does receive Jesus. He does honor Jesus. He calls Jesus his Lord. That's the translation of the literal Greek word here. Sir is too weak. It reduces the attachment to the Almighty which this believing father is confessing. He is asking for Almighty power and he acknowledges the Almighty person who has that power. You have to translate that word Lord. It's Kyrie. This royal official is confessing, Lord, I do believe. Though, in fact, I have seen no signs and wonders. Lord, I do believe. Act, Lord. Lord, perform the action you alone are able to perform. Come down and heal my son. I believe. I believe, Lord, you are able. Come down and act. Act upon my child. Act for life, not death on my son. And Jesus still does not act. Or does he? Jesus says, verse 50, you act. Go your way. And the father goes down, verse 51. There's another slice of John's irony. Jesus comes down, verse 47. Lord come down, verse 49. And as the father was going down, verse 51, and in going down, the father, not Jesus, 
The father is met by his servant. Your son lives. He lives. Jesus does not accede to the father's request. Come down. Jesus does not act. Or does he? Or does he? Is it possible that the irony here is resolved in the nature of faith? Jesus does not appear to act. He preaches. He preaches about the nature of true faith. Not the faith of miracles, but the faith which, not having seen miracles, takes Him at His word. Indeed, Jesus has acted. When He says, your son lives, verse 50, Jesus has acted. It is the reciprocal action of faith. Jesus has acted. The believer has reacted in trust and in confidence. That is what faith as union with Christ experiences. It experiences full confidence in Jesus. Confidence that Jesus is Lord. Kyrie. He is able to give life for the dead and dying. And it responds out of that union. Go. Your son lives and believing faith goes. Trusting the words of Jesus. This very rapid fire story is a dramatic account of True faith directed to, united with, trusting in Jesus. A father and a son, not to mention a household, are translated into the arena of life through faith in the words of Christ. In truth, the rapid action is reciprocal. Jesus does act. He gives life. And those that trust Jesus' act, they too act. They embrace. They believe. They lean their hearts on the life Jesus gives. Cana of Galilee encloses and discloses the Christological, soteriological, and eschatological emphasis of John's story of Jesus. At the outset is the displacement of Judaism. At the conclusion, it is the displacement of death. In both, it is the relationship of faith. And his disciples beheld his glory and believed on him, chapter 2, verse 11, and verse 53 of chapter 4, and he and his household believed on him. The surpassing sweet union wrought by true faith in the Son of God, in that sweet union is life, eternal life, eschatological life, not death, but life forevermore for you and for me. Now we come to the fifth chapter, and your packet has a structural outline as well as some handouts which show you where the pool of Bethesda was. You will notice in the map of Jerusalem, it is north of the temple, and you will notice uh, from the schematic from the excavation of the Pool of Bethesda that was discovered in Jerusalem in 1888 that it was an immense porticoed or colonnaded pool, a covered walkway lining a pool. Now the two divisions of the pool are divisions according to the sexes. One was for women, the other was for men. The covered colonnade was to allow them to get out of the water and to rest in the shade. 
There were steps at either end of the pool so that a person could descend into it. And in this fifth chapter of John's Gospel, when he mentions in verse 7 that the movement of the waters was agitated, the excavators are fairly certain that there were hot springs underneath the pool, and that's what fed it and caused it to uh, intermittently move. As if any of you ever sat in a thermal pool know that if it's naturally fed, it will intermittently bubble on and off. Now, some of you uh, may have a version of the Bible in which verse 3b and verse 4 is completely omitted or bracketed. Now, that is because verse 3b, which refers to the angel stirring the waters, is not in the oldest manuscripts. It is not in P66, the Bodmer Papyrus of about 125-150 A.D. It is not in P75, the Bodmer Papyrus of about 175 or 200 A.D. It is not in Codex Vaticanus. It is not in Codex Sinaiticus. Those are 4th century manuscripts. It does not turn up until after the 4th century. It is obviously an importation of a superstition, a Jewish superstition, in order to justify the reflection in verse 7 about the movement of the water. It is not inspired scripture, in my opinion, and is rightfully removed from the text. Now, this chapter produces several shifts. First, there's the shift in location. We've noted that in the first verse, Jesus comes up to Jerusalem. Actually, he's returning to Jerusalem for the second time. He had been to Jerusalem on the previous Passover when he cleansed the temple and had his interview with Nicodemus. Now, the scene shifts from Galilee in chapter 4 to Jerusalem in chapter 5. Interestingly, Cana of Galilee up to Jerusalem, a pattern again duplicated from chapter 2. In both of these shifts, in both of these sequences, we move to a more complete disclosure of the nature of the new order that Jesus brings, the eschatological new arena which comes with the coming of Christ. In addition, we are shown more and more of who Jesus is. In this fifth chapter, we are going to see very clearly that Jesus is claiming to be God, deity, ontic deity. It is a carrying on of the motif of the prologue, John 1, verse 1, and the word was God. Now, glancing ahead to 6.1, will you notice that 5.1 and 6.1 begin in exactly the same way after these things, or in the Greek metatauta. This is an indication of a bracketing or a narrative unit. Chapter 5 is its own narrative unit. It is set aside by the after these things marker. Now, we have seen a shift in location from Cana of Galilee to Jerusalem. There is a shift in literary pattern here. This chapter contains a miracle, Christ's second healing miracle. But in the previous instance, Jesus' signs are self-attesting augmenting faith, that of the disciples in chapter 2, verse 11, and that of the boy's father in chapter 4, verse 53. 
Jesus makes no comment on the redemptive historical significance of the Semeon. The miraculous abundance of the very best wine is left to speak for itself, as is the cure from a distance of the dying boy. But in chapter 5, we meet the first in a series of miracle plus discourse patterns. Jesus gives a semeon, a miracle sign, and then breaks forth into a lengthy discourse about the redemptive historical moment. The miraculous healing of the lame man is described in verses 1 to 9 of this fifth chapter. The reaction is contained in verses 10 to 18. I refer you to the outline of uh, chapter 5 and the handout. And Jesus concludes with a lengthy discourse from verses 19 to 47. This pattern of miracle plus long speech will be repeated in John 6 with the bread of life discourse after the feeding of the multitudes. And it will be repeated in John 9 after healing the blind man with a lengthy discussion of darkness and light. We are shifting into the heart of John's story where he is laying out in more detail, in more uh, fine lines, the abundant testimony of Jesus to his own deity and his confirmation of that by miraculous signs of redemptive historical import. He even talks about them, exegeting them, commentating, commentating on, comment, giving commentary on them himself. Now, more important than this shift in scene and shift in literary pattern is the shift in the Johannine plot development. I have indicated that the overarching plot scheme in the Gospel of John is conflict. The conflict between Jesus and the Jews. In chapter 1, the Jews, Eudaios, appear only once. In chapter 2, they appear four times. In chapter 3, they appear three times. In chapter 4, they appear three times. In this chapter 5, they appear five times. And up through chapter 9, between chapter 5 and 9, they will appear a total of 22 times. The Jews are going to become chief characters in John's narrative drama. The Johannine characterization of the Jews, beginning in chapter 5, is given with their characterization in chapter 5. Notice in verse 18, they are hostile to Jesus. They will grow increasingly hostile to Jesus until they arraign him before Annas, Caiaphas, and Pilate in chapters 18 and 19 of this gospel. Chapter 5 marks the beginning of overt hostility to Jesus on the part of the Jewish authorities. This motif is destined to escalate to crucifixion. Enmity, redemptive historical enmity, climaxing in the death of the seed of the woman. It is not coincidental that the protological Adam, even as the eschatological Adam, is designated the Son of God, as Luke does for Adam in the beginning in his Gospel, Luke 3.38. This eschatological Son is to endure the protological curse at the hands of the ostensible line of promise. We are confronted no less with redemptive historical ironies as we are confronted with Johannine ironies. 
This motif of Jewish hostility is an elaboration of a motif laid down in the prologue. I have reminded you of that even earlier this evening. In a nutshell, he came to his own, his own received him not. It is not anti-Semitic. It is a historical fact. As an aside, Jesus is a threat to the religious establishment. Those in position of power, ecclesiastical and political, will not long abide the Christ of Scripture. Sooner or later, it will be clear that the Jesus of John cannot be domesticated to a private or bureaucratic agenda. He cannot be manipulated or acculturated. He cannot be used. Christ himself is free. He participates in liberty, absolute liberty. He is free from the power brokers of his age. He belongs to a different arena, and this is why he is so maddening to the bureaucratic mind. He is free to be different, a difference that transcends the world, a freedom that not even the most politically conservative person can imagine. The freedom that Christ displays in confrontation with the religious Jews and political Romans is the eschatological freedom of the age to come. He is content with hostility. He is content with injustice. He is content with abuse. He is content even with the ultimate ignominy, death. For he has not come to play the world's games. He has not come to play the synagogue or the temple or the church's games. He has come to play not the politician's game. He has come to be the incarnation of the love of God, his Father, so that love, devotion, and single-heartedness will draw his children unto himself. And if you are going to be identified with Jesus, you must be content as he is content with hostility, injustice, abuse, and perhaps even death. Now I noted the structural markers at 5.1 and 6.1, the metatauta. I also want you to notice inside chapter 5, there is another after these things or afterwards in verse 14. So between 5.1 to 13, we have a unit, scene 1, Jesus and the lame man. Then in 5.14 to 18, we have scene 2, Jesus and the Jews. Then in verse 19, will you notice the phrase, he can do nothing, which is duplicated in verse 30, I can do nothing. So the first section of this discourse in verses 9 to 30 contains an inclusio. It contains an inclusio framing the discussion of the relation of the Son to the Father. The key word here, the light verter here, is the doing. The doing of the Father and the Son. The Greek poiein. The work of the Father and the Son. And you will notice also in verse 21, zoo poiein, giving life, doing life. And it occurs in that verse two times. What the Father does, the Son does. The Son does what the Father does. This is a reciprocal underscoring of Jesus' response to the charge of the Jews in verse 18, that he makes himself equal with God. They regard it as blasphemy. He gives a discourse of his reciprocal equality with his Father. 
And he does it even in chiastic fashion, as you can see from the outline on your handout. Now, verse 31 is a continuation of the discourse, only now we have a shift. It is not the light verter poien or doing, it is the light verter martyrea or martyrao, the key word of witness, bearing testimony, giving testimony. Two times in verse 31, three times in verse 32, once in 33, once in 34, two times in verse 36, once in verse 37, once in verse 39. That is a whole lot of testimony. That is a whole lot of appeal to witnessing or martyrea. The witness of John the Baptist and the Father is an emphatic witness which ends with the testimony to Jesus which comes down from heaven in verse 40. Now verse 41. We have the discourse going on to its third phase, but now with a shift, another shift in keyword, lightverter. This time it is doxa or glory, verse 41 and two times in verse 44. Notice in verses 44 and 45 and 46, rather, you have Moses' name, doxa, glory, and Moses. That conjunction of Moses and glory is not accidental. It is a retrospective reference to Exodus 34, 29 to 35, and Moses' participation by reflection in the glory of God. You know what Paul does with that in 2 Corinthians. It is the glory with which Moses was veiled, of which he wrote, it is this glory which Jesus incarnates. That glory overcomes Moses, but he is not the glory. This glory is that Shekinah. It is the incarnation of that Shekinah glory. The glory which Moses and the old Israel can only reflect by a veil. They have to hide their face. Jesus, the new and eschatological Israel, incarnates that glory. Jesus is the glory. He is the eschatological glory cloud of the Father. The Jews are challenging His claim to be the very glory being of God. And in their midst, right before their face, he testifies to the surpassing glory, which is him, not Moses. Not that former passing away glory. In summary then, chapter 5 is demarcated by the healing of the lame man, verses 1 to 18, and a lengthy discourse, verses 19 to 47. There are two scenes in the healing of the lame man narrative. The miracle itself, verses 1 to 13, and the confrontation with the Jews, verses 14 to 18. Then there are three units to the discourse, each with a dominant motif. The first is verses 19 to 30, the work of the Father and the Son. The second, verses 31 to 40, the witness to the Son. And the third, verses 41 to 47, the glory of the Son. Now, there's one additional note. You will notice that concentric parallelism or chiastic arrangements, which I have given you in verses 19 to 30, would show an exact duplicate and reciprocal unfolding of that first defense of Jesus' doing. And it crisscrosses with the truly, truly, the double amens in verse 24 and 25. 
What is the significance of the parallel duplication? It is an emphatic underscoring of the doubling roles of the Father and the Son. They are duplicate roles because they are duplicate in glory. They are duplicate in ontological being. They are duplicated in majesty. They are duplicated in being God. This mirror reflection, all that the Father does, so the Son does. He is the very mirror image of God the Father. He is, therefore, God. Now, the biblical theology of the miracle, the healing of the lame man, is a revelation of the glory of Christ, his glory as creator. He is a creator of health. Glory of a recreator, he is a provisional banisher of the curse as a signal of the dawn of the messianic new creation. Notice in verse 3, those who were laying at the pool, some were blind and some were lame. In Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, in the Messianic age, the blind shall see and the lame shall leap as a heart. The Greek words that Isaiah uses in the Septuagint are used by John here in verse 3 of chapter 5. It is a Messianic allusion that as Jesus heals the lame, he is bringing in the Messianic, Isianic age. And this sign, miracle is a sign that Jesus is a glorious consummator. This is a sign of eschatological health in the Jerusalem where there is no more sickness, there are no more blind, there are no more lame, nor withered anymore forever. But also notice the man's impotence, his helplessness, his powerlessness. And that is contrasted with Jesus' omnipotence, his almighty power. It is Christ who commands him. Notice the imperative in verse 3 and in verse 8. It is Christ who commands him to go in the strength of the Lord. Arise, take up your bed, and walk. Now there is another redemptive historical motif here, and that's the transformation of Judaism. We have noticed this redemptive historical shift in the eschatological wine of chapter 2 and the eschatological temple of chapter 2. But I want you to know here that the contrast is with the water in that pool, in that Jewish pool, in that Jewish medicinal pool. That water is powerless. It has no power to heal. And Jesus supersedes any of its alleged medicinal virtues with his staccato imperatives. His word is potent. His word is omnipotent. His word is God's word. He speaks and behold, it is done. Arise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately he arose, took up his bed and walked. That's omnipotent supernatural power at work. But this miracle occurs on the Sabbath. The authority of the one who heals on the Sabbath supersedes Jewish legalism about carrying one's bed on the Sabbath. Even the healed man gets the point. Notice verse 11. If the one who healed me had authority and power to heal, he has authority and power to tell me to take up my bed and walk. This miracle is a sign that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And on that Jewish Sabbath tied up with knots of legalism and moralism, Jesus reveals the inbreaking of the eschatological Sabbath. A day of rest, eschatological rest for the sick and the blind and the lame and the withered. 
On this Sabbath day, Jesus gives a sign that the curse is provisionally removed from the restless creation. And to this lame man on this Sabbath day, a little bit of heavenly rest intrudes itself into his life. There is a perfect heavenly rest yet remaining. There is a Sabbath remaining. Even now he has received a foretaste of an endless Sabbath rest and health. The Jewish Sabbath has been transcended by the Lord of the Sabbath. No longer proscriptions against healing on the Sabbath. No longer 600 plus rules about do's and don'ts on the Sabbath. The Son of the Father has brought the semi-eschatological Sabbath, the now-not-yet Sabbath. The rest from sickness which now is, and the rest from sickness which will be forever at that last day. Therefore, sabbatizing, since the advent of the Lord of the Sabbath has become a semi-eschatological reality. Now we rest provisionally one day in seven Not yet we shall rest eternally when the only day will be a heavenly Sabbath. We cannot return to the theocratic Sabbath with its legalistic burdens. We have been transformed by the appearance of the eschatological Sabbath and our Sabbath practice. Yes, it still remains. It still abides. It is still obligatory. The fourth commandment has not been abolished. Our Sabbath practice testifies to our participation in the now and our anticipation of the not yet Sabbath in the eschaton. You desabbatize the seventh day, the first day of the week, and you de-eschatologize the whole New Testament era. That's what you're doing. You are saying implicitly that the realized eschatology is now. You don't live there. You live between the now and the not yet. And so he's given you a day in which you will testify to the now and not yet of your existence. Now I rest from my labors on this one day in seven because I am telling the whole world that I will not yet rest forever in a heavenly eternal Sabbath. You de-eschatologize the now. You are gutting the not yet. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. If you love me, you keep my commandment. He said it. I did it. Christ's claim to be Lord of the Sabbath then is implicitly remarked by the lame man. And it is implicitly challenged by the Jews in verses 16 to 18. They get the message. Equality with God is what Jesus claims Here's the scandal of this miracle worker, this Lord of the Sabbath. He claims to be God. This is the strongest kind of evidence. Even his enemies say he says about himself what he himself says about himself. In a court of law, that's regarded as unimpeachable. Unimpeachable testimony. Jesus claims to be God. Interesting. Jesus' friends claims he to be God. Expected. Jesus' enemies say he claims to be God. Put a lock on it. That settles it. He is God. This is a test of orthodoxy. It's a text test of Christianity. If you can't say Jesus of Nazareth is God, the second person of the eternal Godhead, 
very God of very God, consubstantial with the Father, homo husios, then you are not a Christian. And if you are worshiping in a church where the pastor will not announce the orthodox formulation unequivocally of the ontic deity of the Son of God, you're worshiping an apostate congregation, rise, take up thy body and walk, walk out to a church which will unashamedly affirm the ontological deity of Jesus Christ, the ontological Son of God. This is non-negotiable, for your Christianity is paganism. That's what the pagans think. That's what every pagan thinks. That's what the Romans thought. Jesus, this troublemaker, he's no god. How could a god die? It was absurd to a Hellenist, to a Roman. Absurd. A scandal. Absolutely scandalous. The cross is a scandal. Yes, says Paul. That's right. It is. Because God did what you have to do unless he did it for you so that you can live forever. So the arrival of the Son of God, chapter 5, is the arrival of an age in which he gives a sign that the lame live and walk. He gives a sign that the eschatological Sabbath has arrived. Now, not yet. He gives a sign that the eschatological witness has arrived. He gives a sign that the eschatological glory has arrived. This is far surpassing Judaism. Because it transcends from glory to glory. All right, well, um, I don't have time to go on to John 6, though I had hoped we could. So we will begin uh, there next week, Lord willing. And uh, at this point, I'll take questions or comments which you may have on uh, 4 or 5. Yes, David? Yeah, the question is about four uh, nine and the Jews having no dealings with the Samaritans. Is it more focused upon specifically marriage uh, relations, or is it uh, uh, dealing with relations in general? The general view is that it is general. That is that it refers to the fact that they do not mix with one another. They were walled off as uh, cultures distinct and separate from one another. In fact, the Samaritans regarded the Jews as heretics and vice versa because the Samaritans took the Samaritan Pentateuch as the only inspired revelation 
and they regarded the uh, other Jews as adding the prophets and the writings as an uh, extension of corruption to the uh, pure Mosaic revelation. Any other questions or comments? Yes, John? Uh, no, that, that's the divine necessity which is upon him. You know, he's doing this because he is, uh, he is sovereignly appointed to this encounter, and he is sovereignly appointed to it and must accomplish it because it is the beginning of the first fruits of the Gentiles, and it is the redemption of this sinful woman. So that's the, that's the necessity. He had to go. That's the necessity upon him. It's not because, you know, there's, there's a fire in the Jordan Valley or something like that, you know, so he has to make a bypass. No, this, this is he has to go because the Father has appointed him to this, to this meeting. And you think John is saying that? John is saying that by the use of this Greek word ede. It is a, it is a sovereign necessity. Praise God. She would praise God for the fact that it was necessary. Yes, Paul? Um, when it says he himself believed, it's making a reflexive use of the pronoun so that it, it distinguishes that clause from his whole household. So it is kind of a, uh, it's kind of an enlargement, but it refers to he himself believed. So when you say he believed and his household, but he himself believed and his whole household believed too. So the reflexive brings the emphasis back to him as saying that it, you know, it's in him and it is also in the household as well. The parallel is that he's believing both times, but the second repetition is to say he himself believed, and then his whole household believed too. So it, it got better as it reinforced itself. There's no, no diminution of his faith or his belief. It's the fact that the reflexive pronoun is, is segmenting him slightly from the household with respect to belief. So it's emphatically underscoring the fact, yeah, he's, he's, he's still believing when he went down. He hasn't stopped believing. John, your hand was up again. Yeah, apparently somebody ignorant can. But, uh, there are no ignorant questions. Go ahead. You uh, stressed the, the three evidences, the Christ claimed to be God, the disciples said he was, and then you said that uh, his enemies said he was claiming to be God, and you, you, you stated there's unequivocal evidence that he was. I'm not sure I understand why the fact that they're claiming he's they're saying that he's claiming to be God. In other words, they're testifying that what he claims, what he says he claims to be, he does claim to be. In other words, this is not duplicitous. This is not his friends saying that this is what he claimed to be. This is his enemies saying this is what he claimed to be. We heard him say this. This is the strongest, a damning kind of indictment. So you would expect his friends to say, yeah, that's what he claimed to be. If you say, oh, yeah, he said that's what he was, but when his enemies say that's what he said he was, now we know that that's what he said he was. Now we have to come to, dip, come to grips with, all right, that's what he said he was. Even his enemies testify to that. Is it true or is it false? It brings you back to C.S. Lewis's divide, okay? Kling?
Verse chapter 4 or chapter 5? Chapter 5. Correct. And you see the brother words in the air all kind of he anticipates himself in sort of this divine form. All right, the the observation is that in five uh, twenty-four and following, with the emphasis upon witness and also the parallel emphasis upon judgment, is Christ placing himself in a divine form. I think that's an interesting thought, and I would not uh, rule it out from further investigation. Uh, simply because he has been, so to speak, put in a trial situation from the, the rejection of the Jews or the hostility of the Jews. So he's drawing it out into the supernatural form, you know, where he's endorsed by the Father and the witness that the Father has given to John the Baptist and others. Very interesting idea and certainly worth pursuing. See, there's always more to do. Good. The anti-eschatological as well as the positive eschatological. And notice in this chapter, verses 24 and 25, he who hears my word and believes has eternal life. There's that now eschatological aspect. And then in verse 29, they hear my words and shall come forth into a resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment. There is your now, not yet relationship, the semi-realized eschatological tandem within the space of six verses. It's right there in the heart of John 5. So it's not something we invented. It's not something we've read into the text. It comes right out of the text. It's not something Voss invented. It's something that comes right out of John, Paul, and the other New Testament writers. Okay. See you next week.